I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is a podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. The childbirth and parenting classes that I had attended leading up to my daughter's birth were great, but could not have even remotely have prepared me for the real thing. Witnessing and being part of the actual delivery was something that you have to experience to truly appreciate the miracle of childbirth. My daughter was two weeks overdue, and the doctors had given us a date of March 11th as the date that my then wife was to come and check into the hospital to be induced. We were supposed to check into the hospital at 9 a.m., and so the night before we packed our bags and prepared for the arrival of our baby. We set the alarm for 7 a.m. and went to bed excited but nervous about the day ahead. At 6.50, 10 minutes before the alarm went off, my wife woke me up and told me that her water had broken. I knew then, as I do now, that this baby would do things her own way. So we rushed off to hospital. And the funny thing is, I've always wanted to be stopped by police for speeding and have a genuinely good excuse. But my dream didn't come true that day. Anyway, the birth itself was surreal something that all fathers absolutely have to experience. There was an unfortunate major complication with my wife the moments right before the delivery. We were fortunate to have a great team of doctors and nurses on hand to manage the situation, otherwise she would have lost her life. I learned later that not enough women do, and this is the same complication that is the leading cause of maternal mortality worldwide. My guest today is Catherine Brimhall a midwife who specializes in pregnancy, at-home childbirth, postpartum, women's sexual and reproductive health, and newborn care out of her home office in Barrie, Vermont. In 2004, in response to the earthquake in Baum, Iran, Catherine began her intensive years of disaster relief work, focusing on the long-term effects of trauma on family and maternal child health systems. In addition to Iran, her relief work has taken her to Russia, Bali, Indonesia, New York City, post-Katrina, Louisiana, and Haiti. She serves as the president of Bumi Sehat Foundation International in the U.S. Catherine has developed and served as the director and organizer of the student midwife program in Bali, Indonesia, until the closure in 2004. She travels to Bali each year as a volunteer midwife, fundraiser, and U.S. liaison. Catherine, there's a lot of things that you get up to but welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Thank you so much. When you were telling the story of the night before and the morning of your daughter's impending birth, I just sat and smiled. I never get, I never ever get tired of hearing people's stories of the birth of their families. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that I wish I could uh, capture in some sort of. Um, video archive or something, you know, a very exciting time frame, but also nerve-wracking as a first-time parent. 
And one of the most transformative things that people who choose to become parents do in their entire life is transform from man and maiden into parents of a little person who will grow up to then become an adult. Absolutely. It changes your entire world perspective. You know, everything that you thought was important no longer becomes important. And you start to appreciate <laughs> some of those little things in life. Uh, I guess you become your parents. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, why don't we start off uh, the interview by asking you the question that I usually start my podcast with. And so by you telling me a little bit about uh, yourself, your own birth and your childhood and what childhood influences led you to becoming who you are today? Oh, good heavens. I might not remember all of those questions all at once, so feel, <laughs> feel, feel free to prompt me. But um, I actually don't know much about my birth. I know that I was born via a cesarean section back in the time when children were very often, most often, delivered by a healthcare professional in hospital um, where women didn't have a whole lot of say about any of it, nor did men uh, attend the birth of their children back then. 1959 was a um, time when childbirth was managed for couples often put to sleep and or uh, birthed operatively. So I was a cesarean baby, not breastfed. Um, I have two brothers born similarly. And I grew up in upstate New York in a cabin in the middle of the woods without electricity or plumbing and we heated with wood um, a quarter of a mile into the woods in a teeny little farm town. It was small and it was simple and um, there were mornings when we would wake up in the middle of the winter in upstate New York where our salad oil was cloudy because it was so cold in the house. <laughs> My life was marked with small systems of individuals and um, small family systems in a small community, in a small high school, where being personal really mattered, which was really nice because I think I was born wanting to be personal with people. The funny story that I tell these days is about 10 years ago, I was answering the question about where I grew up and how I grew up. And I said, I grew up in a little cabin in the woods, da-da-da-da-da. And I said, and then we would go camping like every other weekend or rock climbing or ice climbing. And, and the person sat across from me sipping their tea and said, most people would consider how you lived to be camping, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So how did you then end up in Boston uh, from being somebody who was more a sort of a country mouse rather than a city mouse? <laughs> um, so I left my little town in upstate New York the day after I left high school, traveled up to New Hampshire to work for the Appalachian Mountain Club, where it turns out I met the man who was my children's father. And we hippied around for a couple of years and got married and 
very soon after we got married, I got pregnant. I was very young. But getting pregnant when you're young has its benefits because your body is still so young and alive and healthy and and it just knows how to birth when you're young. I was 20 years old when I first got pregnant. Wow. So had you experienced any births of your own before you had your own children? And did that have any impact on the type of uh, birth you planned for your children? So I was too young to know anything. I didn't know anybody who had had babies before. Um, I didn't know anything about birth. The funny thing is, was when we got pregnant and went to childbirth education classes, we sat there with very highly educated, very wealthy people in the Boston area, six couples sitting around and everybody was very well prepared to have their babies in every single way. And we weren't, <laughs> we were just young. <laughs> and after six whole classes, the, the instructor said, so does anybody have any questions? And I was so scared and shy. I was 20 years old and they were all professionals. And, <laughs> and um, I, <laughs> I raised my hand and I said, so I don't think you ever told us what contractions feel like. How will I know? <laughs> she said, oh, oh you'll know. <laughs> you'll just know. Exactly. <laughs> Which was most unhelpful at the time. And what's really remarkable is that it has, it has been one of the guiding lights for me was her answer. Every time I teach a childbirth cl education class to to first-time parents, I tell that story. And I say, so I'm going to tell the secret. I'm the secret buster. Contractions feel like this. And then I describe what a contraction, can, the many ways that a contraction can feel and ways that they might know. And then I say, and if you don't know, and if it isn't obvious, all you have to do is call me. So what do contractions feel like? <laughs> Well, it depends on what pregnancy this is. It depends on you and your body and your baby. But oftentimes a contraction for women who've never been through labor before will experience that sensation or those sensations as a combination of menstru low menstrual cramps that actually travel around the entire um, abdomen where the uterus is. So it's low, low menstrual crampy uh, feelings with, it's like when you have a bicep that you're contracting, you know, it gets hard, it gets, you know, uh, mm -hmm. sustained contracting. So those couple of things together or your back could hurt, but it comes in a rhythm and then it goes away and then it comes in another rhythm and then it goes away and it comes in another rhythm and it goes away and it's, engineered such that different than a menstrual cramp which you know often is experienced as it's just there for a couple of hours it, it's engineered so that you it, it starts out it gets to a peak and then it goes away and then there's a break and the beauty of that rhythm is that the the woman experiences it and says I can do that and then after a little while, it gets a little more intense. And she has to catch up with it and figure out what her coping mechanisms are. 
And then, it, and then after a little bit, she goes, I got this. And then it amps up another time. And it's a lot, but by then in my practice, you know, the midwife and the birth team are there and, and supporting her and doing physical and emotional um, uh, relief measures. And then it changes to a pushing experience and, and then you're holding your baby. But, it, but it's the kind of pain and discomfort that is engineered to make sense inside a woman's system, even if she's not having fun. Wow. And some women do have fun with labor. I loved labor. It's the thing that made me know I would be a midwife. I found labor so empowering. And that doesn't mean that every woman should or does. I actually did not enjoy pregnancy. But labor for me made so much sense and it just gave me the feeling that I had the strength and the intuitive knowledge that if I could do this and work my way through this mystery, somewhere inside me I sort of thought, well, huh, I bet I can pull off the rest of the mysteries. But this was within a context, you know, of my being cared for during my entire pregnancy and labor and birth and postpartum with midwives. Got it. You make it sound so beautiful, although having... It's also a lot... It's, it's beautiful if it's beautiful. It's messy if it's messy. It's, it's whatever it personally is going to be defined as for every single family. So, yeah, it was beautiful, but that was, but you didn't know me the nine months of pregnancy where I was miserable and complained like a two-year-old. <laughs> every woman, every woman hits their place somewhere between pregnancy, childbirth, um, or postpartum. There's a place in this, in the, in each cycle, where every woman meets the place where she thinks she's going to break, or she's not going to be able to do it, or that she hates it, or whatever that is for her. Mm. In that place, when she's loved through that place, when she's believed through that place, when she's listened to through that place, when she is held as strong enough without needing to be fixed or managed, that is the place for each woman, each birth, where that baby is talking to her saying, look, this is the place I'm going to need you to pull from for my life when I hit it hard. Those are the places of transformation. But in order for that to be so, in order for a woman to be empowered into those places, she has to be either inside knowing that she's got those places or be in care by somebody who can, who can be present for that and then believe her enough not to fix her because they would be fixing something that wasn't broken. They would be trying to fix something that's actually the transformation place. And there's nothing to be fixed there. I see. You're making me want to become pregnant, and I can't even physically do that. <laughs> you know, Tino, the thing is, to be one last thing about this. 
this isn't about home birth. This isn't about hospital birth. The bottom line with all of this is that women should give birth in the place that is not only safest for them, because not all women are are healthy, full-term, and normal in their pregnancies, but every woman should be given the opportunity to have somebody, whether it's their doula or their provider, midwife or obese, every woman should have with her somebody who can be present and offer safe and appropriate care at every stage of this. And the thing that's missing in the maternal child health uh, model in many places, in Vermont, we're really lucky because Vermont is so progressive that most of the places where in where you give birth in Vermont, in most of the situations, most women have the opportunity to be listened to. But not every woman has been empowered to say, hang on a second, you're not listening. And that's the, that's the place where, that's the place that's missing so that that transformation can actually occur. So your birthing experience was quite transformative. Is that how you ended up starting Gentle Landing? So no, <laughs> yeah, that is yes and then no. So my first baby was born in the first uh, birth center in Boston at Mount Auburn Hospital in 1982. I didn't have insurance. I was poor. I was, you know, all the things. <laughs> my second pregnancy, we had insurance by that time. So we couldn't actually afford anything but to go to the OB who was in our plan, which was such a gift. It was such a different care. This The OB didn't know my name. The OB didn't, you know, spent seven minutes with me. The OB just, you know, he kept me safe and fine. And my, the difference in care, I delivered in a, in Back then, they had delivery rooms. I had delivered in the delivery room, uh, flat on my back. You know, it was a very different experience, which was also a blessing. Because I now know how women who aren't being listened to are treated. And I know what's missing. I had a firsthand uh, experience of what was missing, except by then I had already been listened to and empowered. So I was kind of bossy. Um, and just got what I wanted. I had an acupuncturist at my birth. Um, My husband was in the delivery room with me, all the things. So I then just went on to raise my babies at a time when everybody had nannies. But I raised my babies myself. And when they were three and four years old, my phone rang one one night. And um, it was a woman who knew me but not well, who was in labor. She was, and that was before cell phones and pagers and, and her husband hadn't called between work and going to school that night. And she was in labor and called me because I was the only person that she knew who had had a baby. I called in a neighbor to take care of my children, went to her thinking, okay, so it's going to be a little while. I got there and she was in crazy labor. We left no 
departments come to the hospital because there were no pagers. There was nothing. You know, it's not like today. Yeah, yeah. We, I took her to the hospital, and her husband showed up about two hours later, and she was pushing. I mean, it was a quite an efficient first birth. And I, because I was so shy, he walked to the door, and I said, I'll leave now. And she grabbed my hand. She was like, no, you're not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and... And I remember calling my mom and saying, there's nothing I can do about this right now, but I know what I'm doing now. I waited until my children were in their teens. But over the course of that time, women just kept calling me to attend their birth. And women kept talking to me about what they experienced in childbirth. And I just, you know, there was no internet back then. It was just a lot of just staying present for what I was being asked to do. So when my daughters got to be in their late teens, that was when I decided to go to midwifery school. And I chose to train to be an out-of-hospital midwife. Um, And in Vermont, we're called licensed midwives. We are licensed by the state of Vermont. And I decided to go that route because by then I had heard hundreds of women's birth stories and the disempowerment that happened for women whose pregnancies and births were totally normal, but were being managed by hospital providers, because that's what they're supposed to do. This is not about them doing anything wrong. But the confusion for these women were, I knew I could do it, but, and then they would finish their stories. My hope was to be a very safe provider who, when women told their stories, didn't have to end it with but and something else. Now, I can't say that there aren't women out there who don't have the but because we're all just providers and human, but my goal has always been empowerment and safety and empowerment. So how long have you been a midwife? I have been licensed in Vermont for about 10 years, like 10 or 11. I've lost track. Somebody recently made me count, which is something that I've never done before, (laughs) but I'm somewhere up in the 400s of families that I've served all over the world in all different kinds of situations. So your first babies are going to start having babies pretty soon then. (laughs) So my first baby, remember, reference the woman who called me in labor. Oh, yes. He towers about about six inches above me and calls me and calls me ma when when we bump into each other. He's probably 31 or 30 or something like that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's got to make you so proud. Mm -hmm. He is dear to me. He's the one who showed me my destiny. We all need somebody like that in our lives, right? (laughs) <laughs> yes, you know. So you're doing your life's calling, uh, but you're also running a business. Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Yes, I do. It's funny because I have, um, I run a class every one Sunday a month for this extraordinary group of young women in Vermont. There are nine of them. And they're, they've made a commitment for 18 months. They're about three quarters of the way through now. And when they first showed up 
to learn about birth. You know, they all had stars in their eyes and, you know, oh, wow, I get to go to a birth. And I looked at them because I birthed two daughters. And I looked at them and said, I have daughters. I know you guys are really into birth and I'm going to teach you anything and everything you want to know. And if you're here just for the stars, you're in the wrong place. My job is to teach you how to support yourselves and your families so that you can feel supported enough to support other families. You're in it to, you're in it to learn how to run a business in birth, whatever capacity you do as herbalists or doulas or, you know, whatever, whatever your thing is. But by the end of this, our last quarter is all about how do you support yourself to do this? How do you make sure that people value what they do the way they would value any other service they went and signed up for? Absolutely. Wow. That's a, that's a very interesting uh, way of looking at that. I really appreciate that. So um, in 2004, in response to the earthquake and bomb Iran, you began your intensive years of disaster relief work focusing on long-term effects of trauma on families and maternal child health systems. Can you talk to me about how that came about and how you got yourself into that? <laughs> when I come up with that answer, I'll tell you, but I, all I can really do is tell you what happened that night. Um, Christmas night in 2004, my family um, my daughters were teenagers and my family was all out doing, you know, stuff. And I was just cleaning up after Christmas and I had Peter Jennings on, on the television. He was a newscaster for ABC back then. The lead story was about a huge earthquake that hit a um, large town in Bam, Iran, where everything was leveled. And I was passing through and on my little television, I saw a woman standing on the rubble of her home holding her baby at night with this little fire going on top of the rubble where the rest of her family was buried underneath. Mm. And um, the reporter then shot to an old, old man sitting on the rubble of his home where his whole family was buried underneath and a fire was going on top so he could be warm. And I was riveted and alone in my apartment, and I knew that I was going to have to go help. That was naive, um, but it was sincere. What happened is I kept that secret for five days. Um, I didn't even know where Iran was. Anyway, five days later, I informed my family that I was going to Iran. Back then, it was. As now, people were pretty afraid of that um, part of the world. And uh, I knew a Pakistani fellow who I had met at a conference, who was a colleague of mine. I met him five months earlier at a conference. And I called him up. His name was Navid. I called him up in California. And I said, Navid, I'm going to go to BAM. And I need somebody who, can, who knows that part of the world. He asked me three questions. And then he said, Okay, um, I spent the next four, uh, four months planning. Now, what happens after a disaster is you have first responders, uh, you know, people are in so much shock, they need 
you know, food, clothing, shelter, or medical help. They need all sorts of things. Um, but after about four months, one of the things that happens is relief workers start to pull out because there's always more disasters. And as the, as they pull out, what people realize is that they're never going to be the same. And nobody ever looks back. So we, Navid and I went over in April, and as we were driving into BAM, we were driving past convoys of relief workers whose job was finished. You know, the temporary housing had been delivered, the medical tents were set up, all of that. And what, what you saw by the side of the road as you drove into BAM, besides rubble after rubble after rubble after rubble after rubble of people's lives, homes and lives, with people lining the streets watching this convoy go by and we were the only car driving into BAM that day at that time oh my goodness and um so we went and set up some relief programs both in BAM and in Termon which is where most of the orphans went um after the earthquake and after that I just started um again getting called I was in in Russia, working with some of the mental health care workers um, from Chechnya after the war, I, I did. I started doing maternal child health stuff through Bumi Sehat with Robin Lim. We won CNN Hero of the Year Award in 2011. Actually, um, we uh, were in Samantiga, which is out by Aceh in Aceh province in Indonesia after tsunami. And we set up a clinic there and I set up the clinic in Haiti after the earthquake. You know, the, the bottom line is, is when a, when a natural disaster hits, everybody's life gets turned around and turned upside down and they lose things that they never imagined losing. Women still go into labor and have their babies during tragedies. And, um, so our organization, so it morphed from doing trauma relief to doing maternal child health and working with the governments and the uh, officials in the places where we, where we are. Wow. So how do you fit all of this in, in between delivering babies in Vermont? <laughs> I get up at three o'clock in the morning and I work <laughs> overseas. So for the first three to four hours of my day, many days of the week, I'm working overseas. It's a 12 to 13 hour time difference. And then I start my day. The cool thing is, is I don't need a lot of sleep. <laughs> and I've been that way since I was a little girl. So oh my goodness. You know, usually by three o'clock, it's just like, oh, what do I get to do today? <laughs> I don't know how you do that because I'm barely functional at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and then usually one one month a year, I go off to Indonesia. I'll be going off um, in April for a couple of weeks for meetings. My job mostly now, after all these years of working, is um, I run the U.S. fundraising stuff, and then I go over for strategy meetings once a year with the executive committee, which is Frank, Robin, and myself. That sounds like a really, really cool existence you have. <laughs> it's amazing to be part of that village now and, you know, see my babies walking up and down the street and my families. And, you know, I, I'm blessed that I 
you know, have been part of that community now for so many years. It's been about 10 years or so. So, so healthcare services in developing and third world countries are minimal at best. And then you think of that during times of disasters. I mean, I can only imagine what it's like also just being pregnant, you know, which even at the best of times, it's its own challenges. Uh, but the stress of being pregnant during and after a natural disaster, that's got to be quite an experience. Yeah, it depends on the developing country about the access, about the quality and the amount of um, care that is offered. But the huge vulnerability is that, you know, after tsunami, I think the figure was, and I might get this wrong, about 75% of the midwives in our our region were washed away with the waves. And so Bumi Sehat went in and actually set up, and to this day, part of our mission is to set up and retrain capacity build and offer supportive, you know, equipment and facility to local women so that they can then take over the care of their own women. So how do you marry local traditions and values and cultures uh, with your Western knowledge and training as you are either training other midwives or actually performing deliveries? We're very clear that our job is not to deliver the babies where we go. Our job is to train the women who know the birthing culture there. And so we do a lot of... um, we do a lot of sitting with the midwives and with the women in the areas where we go, listen to them and follow their lead and then do skill exchange because they know things that we don't know and vice versa and then just really work in sisterhood the way any group of midwives do, the way the midwives do in Vermont. Yeah, I'd like to actually dig a little bit into... Uh, something that you just said. Um, are there techniques and things that you've learned from working overseas that you have brought back and incorporated into your practices here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that some of my clients choose is, um, it, well, that it, this is now widely accepted in the in the West and in Vermont. But for many years, one of the things that we were emphatic about was delayed cord clamping. Now, delayed cord clamping, according to all the scientific journals, usually is about three, one to three minutes or something like that. What we do really in Indonesia at our clinic is our delayed cord clamping is as long as everything is safe, you know, as long as mom and baby are stable. Are leaving the cord clamped in the placenta and, you know, until after the placenta is born and then tucking that placenta in next to the mom in the baby until um, a little bit later, an hour, maybe two hours after birth, because those few hours, those couple of hours after birth, as long as everything is stable and everybody is stable and you're continually monitoring, those moments after a baby is born are sacred moments where that baby, that mother, and that partner have been waiting for for since conception and and to disturb that time to do something as unnecessary as cut a cord 
is actually um, considered in, in our circles to be an unnecessary interference. It's us putting ourselves into a situation that, unless it's necessary, of course, right. but into a situation where you're actually interfering with a, with a time that that family is never going to get back. Those moments of first meeting, those moments of wonder, those moments of discovery, those moments where the baby's smelling you and you're smelling the baby and you're looking at how much hair that baby has and does that baby have any hair on its shoulders because it's, you know, got some lanugo going on and all those moments to interrupt them unnecessarily just to do something that has no immediate importance is is in my in our estimation at Bumi Sehat, but in my estimation in my practice is interrupting a holy moment that you can't ever give back to them. It doesn't mean that there won't be a lot of holy moments. Those holy moments can never be recaptured. I did a birth two summers ago. Fourth baby, this family has three boys, and this was going to be their last pregnancy, and they knew they were going to have a girl. And they, they were so happy about it. And she was an experienced birther. She was in the tub. This video is actually on my website, gentlelanding.com, under photos. This woman is in the tub, and she's just given birth. And this, what you see in the opening of this video is this mom and this dad in the almost dark. The only light there is the light of my headlamp. The birth went perfectly. And there's, she, there's no bleeding. There's no nothing is going on. She's sitting in the tub. And we, and as soon as we, you know, I felt for the heart rate, you know, and baby was breathing, everything was going fine. So we stepped back and all you see, you see two things. You see those sacred moments of discovery and of the mom and the dad, you know, talking about in, in very primal, but beautiful language of just like, oh my God, I did it. And she says, you did it. You were gentle on me, just like I asked. And she looks at her partner and says, whoa, that was. And he says, yep, it went from this to I'm pushing. And there's just like these moments, this language, sews something together in a relationship that is so, it's so exquisite. And we're just sitting back. I'm watching everything. I'm listening to everything. This video goes on for about two minutes. There's nothing to do, and there's we don't say a word. We just witness because we can. Now, don't get me wrong. When things aren't going right, I am the bossiest thing you're ever gonna meet, <laughs> and we're you know, <laughs> you know, and and that's where that's a whole nother conversation. So this baby had its placenta and its cord connected for. Well, this baby, it was about an hour and 15 minutes before the family said, hey, can we cut this off? I'm, we're done with this. You know, and then it's a family's choice. So, you know, those are some of the essences. The bottom line is, is that you just listen. You listen with your heart. You listen with your eyes. You listen with your breath. You listen to everything in all ways. Again, 
so that everything is safe first, but keeping sacred everywhere you can, regardless of what's going on. So a lot of it is education. In my practice, it's informed choice, not informed consent. Informed consent is here, here's what we're going to do to you, sign here. Informed choice is here, this is what would be important for us to be thinking about. You get the exact same standard of care in all the tests offered, but you get a discussion about it. This is what and why, and this is um, the importance of this. And if you choose not to do this, which is your right, these are the things you would want to be thinking and researching in. And what I always say to couples is, you're not hiring me to be a yes man. If you decide that at any point in your pregnancy, something doesn't feel right to you and it's not safe, I'm gonna, we will then have a, an established relationship where, I get to, where I'll say, can we please have more of a conversation about this because the way I see it, that might not be the best choice for you, but we, I would like you know, a, a conversation about this. And I don't, I've never met a couple who doesn't do the right thing for her, their family. Right. So talking about uh, being informed uh, in the time remaining, I'd like to talk a little bit about birthing and delivery itself and some of your own personal experiences that may help educate me and some of my listeners. Uh, we'll start off with this one. What are the differences between a midwife and a doula? And uh, in my head, I've invented that there's this Bloods versus Crips midwife doula rivalry that's going on. <laughs> It's nothing like that. <laughs> That's adorable. Um, a midwife is trained and licensed in the state of Vermont anyway to do full care for preconception counseling, prenatal care, the way you would get in a hospital-based practice, right. um, management of normal, full-term labor and birth, and then newborn monitoring, you know, our newborn care training is, you know, the baby has to be normal and full term and all that stuff. And then postpartum care. A doula is actually the angel of birth, um, of the birth team. The doula is the, is the caring, loving advocate and support person emotional support person for birthing families. She's the one who comes in and um, you usually see her two or three times prior to birth um, in your third trimester most often. She comes to your whole birth she, and, she, um, and then she does a lot of teaching and physical, you know, comfort measures during labor and birth. And then, you know, you usually debrief with her a couple of times postpartum as a medical provider. Um, midwives are more quote unquote medical. Doulas are more mental, emotional support. Got it. Is midwifery uh, and home births covered by most insurances? Um, so in the state of Vermont and um, Medicaid will cover your home birth and your prenatal care. And Blue Cross Blue Shield does. It depends on if, if a midwife is in network with an insurance company, but most insurance companies through Vermont will pay for your home birth. Cigna, Blue Cross, I'm not sure about MVP, but I'm pretty sure if you're in network, they do. The expectation gets a little funny. People think, well, 
uh, it's covered by insurance. It also depends on your deductible and your co-insurance as right. to whether or not, you know, but yes, in it's fact. It's very complicated with insurance. And we carry, <laughs> yeah, and we carry malpractice insurance, most midwives in the state do, or many of them do. And the ones who don't, don't accept insurance. Yeah. So have you ever had a father faint? <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, actually, recently I had a father who stated that he would, and he was certain he would. He doesn't do this kind of thing. And what he did instead was catch his baby with me with his own hands <laughs> and not faint. No, I haven't. That would not be a good time to faint at that point. <laughs> so I guess if you haven't had fainting fathers, what about a woman punch her partner? I never have. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> I, these are questions I would never have expected. Nope. Okay, I'm, I'm scraping the bottom, bottom of the barrel here. Okay, have you ever been assaulted Clearly. by a woman? No, but you want to hear a funny story? Sure, go for it. I was at a birth eight years ago with a second time mom. She had never had a home birth. So her first baby was born in hospital and she went into labor. We were there at 730 in the morning. So it was a daytime birth. We set up the birth tub. She got in the birth tub and she was very polite. May I please have a glass of water? Can you please rub me there? Da -da 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 -da. This went on for about 20 minutes and the husband came over and he whispered, how is this going to be soon? And I said, I'll let you know. 25 minutes later, she was had her eyes closed and she was in the tub and she finished a contraction and she said, I'm hot. <laughs> and what I always say to people is when a woman stops being polite, we're really on the way. <laughs> and and I, my student at the time went over and put a nice cool cloth over her forehead. She's laying back. Her husband was on the other side of the birth tub as I was. We were kneeling next to it. The student put the washcloth there, and the mom whipped it off of her forehead and threw it in my face really hard. And the poor dad looked mortified. And I just took it off, and I looked at him, and I said, soon. Yeah. We were holding a baby eight minutes later. <laughs> 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 That's funny. Speaking of uh, birthing pools and stuff, I mean, they're, they're coming up with some fairly interesting things that help the birthing process, you know, like uh, music and birthing balls and showers and so on. What's the mm -hmm. craziest thing that you have seen so far? Or the most interesting? Oh, I had a mom who was in advanced labor and pushing and pushing and pushing, but she couldn't really get underneath it. She couldn't finish it up, and she was getting really frustrated. And I looked at her eye to eye, and I said, what would help? She said, I want everybody but you out of this room. I can't concentrate with everybody, which was a little confusing, but she had like five people in the room. And I said to my student, I said, I want you to go sit in the corner where she can't see you because I'm not going to be in here alone. Everybody went outside and she had her baby 30 seconds later. Wow. It was, it was such a, it was such a, this is no exaggeration. It was a, a, an amazing illustration of women need to feel safe 
and need to feel private enough to open up, to open up the place that is inside them to bring their little babies into the world. When a woman is pushing a baby out, an organ in their body is opened up. Uh, uh, um, it, it's like an opening into the soul. And this mom needed to be really alone in order to just finish up opening. So, Catherine, in closing, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? Hmm. I would say to myself, you don't have to wait till you're as old as you're going to be to believe your intuition. You can start trusting it now. I love that. So, um, would you like to share how people can learn about you and how they can get involved in either your practice or otherwise help with the Bumi Sihat Foundation? Yes, thank you, Tino. Um, my midwifery practice is based, I have an office in Barrie, Vermont, but I also just opened up a practice in Groton, Vermont, near the New Hampshire border where I'm also licensed. And you can go to gentlelanding.com um, and there's a contact me form, but there's also a lot of information. Um, for anybody who's interested in the work of Bumi Sehat, um, you can also go to Gentle Landing and contact me. The last thing I want to say is if you're in care with somebody that where you don't feel like you're being respected, listened to in the way that you need to, you're also welcome to call me. It's okay to change your mind about who your providers are at any point so that you have the best shot and having a peaceful beginning to your birth. It doesn't mean you have to have your babies at home, but I'm always open to talking to women about their experiences. The Taoists say that the spiritual definition of love is that it's instantaneous, and when you look at the other person, it makes you love yourself more. And I always say to women that they should choose their care providers for the birth of their babies with that criteria first. You, it's instantaneous. If you don't have that feeling in the first five minutes, you're not going to have it in five months. And you know that it's love because when you look at the other person, it makes you love yourself more. And then check their credentials. And don't stop with one or the other. And so I actually follow that from myself. The women who are with me in my practice, I have to fall in love with also. I have to have that feeling so that when we're at home and we're making decisions about the health and the safety and the, and the appropriateness of all of their care, there is a deep relationship of trust based on that. That's what Gentle Landings main ethical and um, spiritual tenant is. It's based on loving kindness. Mm. 
Wow, Catherine, I must say there's like still like 287 questions I still wanted to ask you, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to have to save this for, for another day. Uh, what a fascinating and enlightening discussion. You know, I come into contact with a lot of very different people in my personal and professional life, but uh, there are some people that uh, live very specific lives and have specific occupations that I come into contact with once in a blue moon. And uh, hearing from someone like you ranks right up there amongst those special kind of people. You know, I never thought to myself that I would uh, want to get pregnant, you know, but after talking to you, you've <laughs> made it sound like such a beautiful experience. You know, thank you so much for sharing some of the funny parts, some of the sad parts, and some inspirational parts of delivering babies into the world. Uh, thank you for caring for mothers and the smallest citizens of this earth and for making their entrance into this world a gentle, peaceful, and safe experience. Whether it's here in Vermont or halfway around the world in Iran, or even further afield as Indonesia, um, maybe this might be the beginning of bringing back unconditional love into the world and mending the fractured relationships that we have as nations in this earth, one mother, one child, and one family at a time. Bless you, my friend. Have a wonderful day. And with that, we will wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast, On the Shoulders of Giants, I talk to Ali Jeng, who within 10 years of his arrival into the United States from his native Mauritania, has become a city councillor in Burlington, Vermont's largest city. And I think what really prepared me to uh, be an agent of change or trying to bring change is when I lost that privilege in my life. When things started from becoming sweet and becoming sour, that's when I, my learning experience has opened. Because when you have everything with you, when you are privileged, you don't pay attention to what you don't have. You know, you are uh, living in a world that's very, you know, privileged. Anything that you want, you can get, but it won't have any meaning until you try to get it by yourself. For example, my dad, what he did in his childhood, what he accomplished, that for him. I mean, if I stayed privileged, I would not understand the world. You know, and I think that shift from becoming privileged to vulnerable, that's what opened my eyes. And that's what pushed me to get involved. That's what um, helped me um, to understand the differences and also to embrace them, you know, and to be part of a greater community and to just see also the world as not um, stopping with me and my thinking. There are so much out there that we need to explore that we haven't known yet. Hey, listener, just one more quick thing. Do you enjoy following the show or were there moments you found inspiring or instructive? Can you think of anyone, a friend, a coworker, or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second to share the podcast with them. Tell them about it. Direct them to the podcast Facebook page by just searching for On the Shoulders of Giants podcast in the Facebook search field. Or direct them to my website, tcrutanira.com. Or lastly, just show them how to subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast feed. 
because we all grow when good ideas and messages are shared.